PI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 9, The Autopsy and the Wallet. I am joined here in the studio with me. I am past my quarantine time by Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, guys. And remotely via Zoom uh, by Mr. Mike Bussing, who still is afraid of me. Hey, what's up, guys? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, guys, we got a lot of questions this week. Uh, before we get started, Bob, I'd like for you to explain the significance of the measurements of the knife wounds. No one asked about it, and as I was editing, that seemed to be the most important part of the episode. Yeah, I was really curious about that, too, about how that comes into play, because if, that, if those wounds aren't as wide as we think they should be, I mean, that's huge. I think, it, it, and now granted, I had for sure the COVID brain going on last week, which is, if you've never had it, is a real thing. Uh, hard to think. Took me 16 hours to write that 30-minute episode last week. But as I was going through, that was I was always under the impression that the murder weapon was a large butcher knife uh, because that's what the confession says. Very, very clear in the confession. And I think I made the same mistake that Detective Allen made, which looking at the crime scene photos, all you see is this series of wounds across Catalina's chest. That are all big gashes. Yeah, they're they're pretty large. Yeah, and they, guys, you saw them on the Facebook where yep. I posted them. So it looks like a big, thick knife, like a butcher knife stabbed her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm reading through, realizing that those were all flesh wounds. I think that if you combine the defensive wounds and and start to break down kind of the dynamics of the crime scene, what was happening was when Catalina was on her back and the killer is trying to stab her in the chest, she's blocking the. She's she's fighting them, blocking their arms, and they're they're wide because they're just glancing blow. They're cutting her. You know, none of those wounds actually broke into the chest cavity. They're just so they're just slicing across the skin because she's moving and fighting them. And then they start to roll. I think the the killers then push her and roll her onto her back to get to where she couldn't fight anymore. And then continue to stab under her armpit and onto her back. And once we get get her onto her back or onto her side where they can get to her back. That's that. That's where all of the what's what's listed in the autopsy is deeply penetrating wounds occurred, and so that's where we get the idea of how wide the knife actually was because it plunged straight in all the way in to you know like the ones that's very deeply penetrating the lungs. One of them went through the lungs and into the liver. That's a deep cut, a deep stab, and none of those deeply penetrating wounds. We're over an inch wide. They're all an in, there's there's an inch, there's a seven eighths of an inch, and there's a five eighths of an inch, which is uh, for those on Patreon that see the video. That's only that big. That's that's how wide. That's a that's a steak knife, you know, or you, you know, a, not a steak knife like you get in a restaurant, the big fat ones, but just like they come in a knife set. It's a normal size knife. 
or a pocket knife is what that is. And so when I when I saw that, I was like, so wait, wait a minute, we're not dealing with a butcher knife. We're dealing with a very with a with a small actually a small knife, a very small knife that was stabbed in. And and there's no and there's no getting around this. This is not something that can be explained away. So when you when you stab into flesh like that, a blade can make a larger wound than its width because it's moving, right? So if I take a one-inch blade and stab it into you, and maybe I stab it in at an angle or you're twisting and turning as I'm stabbing it, that one-inch blade can make an inch-and-a-half gash. But what it cannot do is make a smaller wound than its width. So meaning, so if you take a butcher knife that's an inch-and-a-half thick and you plunge it, you know, so, so say at the, say four inches deep into the knife, it's an inch and a half thick. And if you stab me four inches deep into my body, that's going to make at least an inch and a half stab wound. It has to, you can't fit that knife in there without making that big of a cut. So, so when we have the only deeply penetrating wounds we have are five eighths of an inch, seven eighths of an inch and one inch. What that tells me is, and I, and I didn't even get, because she didn't talk about it on the witness stand, but it's in the autopsy, the, the five-eighths of an inch one that I think stabbed all the way into her heart, if memory serves correctly, I think tells me that we're looking for a knife that is no bigger than five-eighths of an inch. And with the struggle, I mean, it doesn't, it, there's no plausible explanation of why there would be two knives with the struggle that's happening. No. Somebody wouldn't switch knives. So, I mean, it would have to be that knife. Throughout the entire attack. Yeah. And there's no evidence that there was two knives. So so if those chest wounds, mm-hmm. if they were two inches thick and and jabbed four or five inches into the body, then you could start, you know, obviously there's still that movement we were talking about, that possibility. But you could maybe make the argument, well, that was a bigger knife than the one in the back. But the fact that those wounds on the chest are like half inch thick, I mean, they didn't even break like, you know, they, they went into the skin, they hit bone. What's the maximum depth on those? Well, she didn't. She never gives measurements of depth. Um, but what she does is she says that they don't. They didn't penetrate into the chest cavity. They didn't make it past. So if you think of if you kind of feel on your chest, you got skin, subcutaneous fat, and then muscle and bone, and then beyond that is where you get into the chest. None of them made it into the chest cavity. They all they all tore just across the skin. And then there was the one injury. Did you say that was to her back that penetrated her heart? Uh, I, I don't remember where that one went in. I have to look back at the autopsy because, again, that one wasn't in the – she didn't cover it at trial, but it was in the report. But there's at least two of them that were in – and, again, it's hard to tell because she's like – when she's on the stand, if you read the transcript, she's looking at crime scene photos. There's no autopsy photos where these things – are, and there's no diagram where she's labeled each cut. That seems pretty abnormal, right? Very, very strange. And I don't know if she didn't make them make them – or if they just weren't used at trial. But I can see very clearly, I could see why they wouldn't be used at trial because it cuts against their case really, really hard. So they, so for whatever reason, she's only looking at crime scene photos. And in the crime scene photos, Catalina's still dressed. Like they've, they've got like her shirt pulled open a little bit where you can see the wounds on the chest. And a couple of them, the, the shirt's pulled up from the back where you can see the ones like under the armpit and some in the back. But yeah, those ones on the chest, Mike, they just, I, I would say if I estimating based on how she's describing the tissue in those cuts, that they're a half inch deep. Okay. You know, so they're an inch and a half tear on the skin and a half inch deep. Yeah. So that just further supports your, your claim that it was a smaller knife used because what knife is a half inch long, right? I mean, that has to be the tip of a knife. So. Right. It's just the tip of a knife, I think, grazing across the skin. Yeah. 
as she as she's fighting him. Now there was an injury that broke the sternum. Is that that's correct, right? Well, may, <laughs> there's one that is near a, a fracture in the sternum. I was really looking for her to explain that in the breakdown of the wounds on the autopsy report. She doesn't say which wound did that. My thought is, and, and she said it was like down at the hyoid, which is the bottom of the sternum. My thought is that was probably. And, and this is just my theory based on what I'm reading, because there's like an absence of inter- information, right? But we know that the nurse came in and performed CPR on Catalina. I know from personally performing CPR on pe- especially elderly people, you almost always break ribs or break the sternum, fracture. So I, my guess is the fracture to the sternum, which I read initially when I was writing the episode as a knife that hit it. And, and I thought, man, this person has to be pretty powerful that they stabbed in and you know fractured the sternum. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't actually say that. I think the sternum was fractured from CPR. Okay. And that could be why she didn't bring it up. Yeah. Well, she did bring it up at trial, but it, she doesn't, like, it's not written in. It's just, you have to, like, read the documents. This is the weird, and this is a very highly qualified ME. And that's what was weird is the, the absence of information in this autopsy from someone who I know is very skilled at her job. Uh, the fact that all this information was missing uh, makes me wonder about that. But. Uh, the longest to simplify everything based on these wounds, there was Catalina was stabbed with a very small knife. What's very small? The biggest knife that I can see in taking measuring all the knives in my house based on the measurements we have. So if you go five eighths of an inch, we have some steak knives that are like four and a half inches long and are five eighths of an inch wide. Like a paring knife? No, just like a just like the steak knife. A paring knife is only like two or three inches long. So just like, do you have a knife set at your house? Yeah. So, you know, like usually in the block, you got all the bigger knives up top and then across the bottom, you've got all like the, the there's like five or six of the same type of knife that are used just for like cutting steak or whatever. Yeah. It'd be like those size. Okay. And and the reason that is so important is because as I said, we have, when we're looking at, at Jennifer's confession, we're analyzing any statement. I'm always looking for evidence of the police giving her the information for her statement. Now, as we've we've pointed out time and time again, Jennifer has given zero, has demonstrated zero guilty knowledge of this crime. In her confession, air quote confession, she doesn't tell the police anything that they don't already know. And then we see evidence of things showing up in in the statement that were mistakes. They were assumptions made by police. Uh, we talked about the, the the they thought there was blood on the plastic. So she says, I checked for pulse, got blood on my hand. And then there's that weird interaction where Tim says, hey, right there, move that plastic, find that knife. And she moves the plastic. And then we find out that wasn't blood on the plastic. It's the same thing here with the knife. And she says very specifically. Now, Detective Allen would have been the only even with Jennifer being in the crime scene. If I remember correctly, in the part where she came in, like after they after Pam Wiley went inside, that was before the nurse came in and did CPR. Catalina's shirt was still closed. The they opened that up later, which means Jennifer wouldn't have been able to see those wounds when she was there, uh, and Catalina was still on her side when she was in in there. But we know that Detective Allen has seen those wounds. She he has seen these huge gashes across her chest, and then we find in her statement that she says. Tim grabbed a knife out of the drawer. He grabbed a large, a, a large knife, like a large butcher knife. That is big beacons of light saying ding, 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 ding. This is this this came from 
from Alan. It came from the detective. It did not come from Jennifer. Because we know that that a large butcher knife, absolutely, 100%, no question, did not make those wounds. Did not, could not have. And Jennifer would have had no reason to think that was the weapon because, you know, because she didn't see the wounds. And if she was in there and actually participated, she would know what kind of knife it was. But Detective Allen is the only one who thought that a large butcher knife was used based on what he saw, false assumption. And then that information leaks into Jennifer's so-called confession. And then on that same line, the, the, the wallet was a big thing. The wallet's confusing. I know we got a ton of questions about it. The wallet's super confusing. I, I'm not here to tell you that I know what the hell happened with the wallet or how it got there. But what I can tell you is that if Jennifer was confessing and she knew what happened because she was involved in the crime, then she would have told him where the fucking wallet was. He would have asked where the wallet was, which I guarantee you he did. If you can give some narrative to me where you think that Jennifer is like, okay, I'm confessing. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to tell you everything I know. And this is what happened in the crime. And I was there helping, but then doesn't tell you, like decides to hold that piece of information back. I mean, she's already said in the confession that the reason she did it was because they were going to give her money. There's all, you know, she's not, she's not like, she's not sanitizing herself in her confession at all. At the time that they're questioning her, the detectives know that what two things are missing as far as I'm is the wallet and the keys. Exactly right. Yeah. So they would, it feels like they would definitely ask that her about those two specific things. Exactly right. There is zero chance they didn't ask because it said in the initial report, they knew the only two things that were missing was the, like you said, the keys and they knew the wallet was gone with all of her identification. So yeah. So, so now he's got her in front of him giving this confession supposedly. Yeah. There's no way he doesn't say, well, where's the wallet? But it's just like we don't know where the white vase came from or what it is. It's because Detective Allen didn't know, so he couldn't feed that to her. Is it strange that the wallet is not like talked about at all? Because even if she didn't know, don't you think she would say something about it? Like if he asked her, what did you do with the wallet? Don't you think she would at least say like, oh, we threw it away just to, to try to appease him? Or do you think he just didn't get the answer he wanted and didn't include it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's like, as you said... If we think he interrogated for seven hours and never asked about the wallet, if you believe that, you're out of your mind. He absolutely did. But he didn't get, I, I think that he just, he didn't get an answer that he could work with. And so he just left it out. And it looks as though in Jennifer's statement as she's giving her narrative as though she just never mentions the wallet. But that narrative was, in a, was a question answer format as he's typing it in there. So it was asked about. And, and the fact that she doesn't mention it, is again, and, and like I said, I know there's plenty of people out there that still think she's guilty, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not at all. I'm, a, I'm still very open-minded in this case. But the way we investigate these cases, the way we've done this for 10 seasons, is we, we throw off the initial investigation, and then first we look at the evidence from ground zero and see how it matches up to the evidence the prosecution used. Time, technology, attention to detail, if the prosecution got the right person, should always make the case stronger. But in this case, every time we put a microscope on an element of anything in this case, it, it, it the state's case falls apart. And in this case, you have one single piece of evidence against Jennifer, and that's her own confession. That's why we've focused so much. It's frustrating. I know it's confusing. It's frustrating. But we've been focusing on that. And what we're seeing is point after point after point after point that her confession is not true. She not only doesn't demonstrate guilty knowledge of the crime, 
but she gets the elements of the the important elements of the crime scene completely incorrect. And that's why I'm 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 very much leaning toward there's just Jennifer didn't have anything to do with this. You can't all you can do is is hypothesize and think of some crazy scenarios or some possible scenarios of how she did, but there's certainly no evidence that she did. Well, in my eyes, the wallet the presence of the wallet doesn't help include or exclude any of the key players. Right. Just because they, they've all had access to it at that point or that apartment. So that's where like the wallet is a little confusing. Now, if they could pull some DNA, if there was some DNA present on the wallet that they could pull, that would help a lot. But I think just the presence of the wallet in the apartment really doesn't help exclude Jennifer or include Jennifer right. or, or vice versa with, with Eva like or Katie or Youngster, any any of the key players that we've heard of. I don't think it really, right now, it's just kind of a, a mystery item. Yeah. I don't think it includes or excludes anybody specifically, but what it does do 100% is it points a finger at one of the key players for sure being involved, but that's all it does. I agree with you 100%. And there's people that that that, that theorize that maybe it was planted and, there's other, and, and that's possible. I, I don't think it's super probable, but in my opinion, I agree with both of you that it doesn't give it doesn't take any steps towards that this means Jennifer was involved or this means Eva was involved or this means KD or youngster or that it excludes any of them it's still a big old mystery until we can do some forensic testing but at the same time i agree with you mike that what it does tell us is that someone from that apartment was involved is there a scenario where maybe that's not true sure but i i don't see it the, the only scenario that i think is possible which I still don't think is what happened, is that Jennifer or Eva picked the wallet up when they went in after the crime. You remember there was that one part in Jennifer's testimony where she said, or it's in Alan's report about what Jennifer said to him in her interrogation where she said there was a, but she doesn't say wallet. She says there was a purse on the floor next to Catalina's body and she picked it up and put it on the chair by the dining table. And then she says there that um, that Eva even told her, whispered to her to grab the wallet, which I took at the time to mean that Eva was like, like, or, or excuse me, grab the purse. I took at the time to mean that Eva was suggesting they steal it. But as I was reading back through it this morning, it doesn't really even say that. It says that Eva told me to to grab the purse and I grabbed it and put it. So you could read it one of two ways, either that she was saying to steal it or that Eva was saying, hey, get that and go put it somewhere. I think that would be a really ballsy thing to do would be to, to take the wallet after the murder if you weren't involved with the murder. If you're involved with the murder, it makes sense. If you're not involved with the murder, you're just causing yourself a whole lot of trouble for nothing. Right. But that's something that I have to say is possible. I, I, I can't say that it didn't happen. So either the one of the four is involved in the murder or... Well, only even Jennifer were inside the apartment. Um, one of them grabbed it after the murder. I don't know. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the listener questions. Mary's got a few questions. First, she says, Bob Ruff, are you and Becky and the kids feeling okay? Hoping you can all still taste, smell, and most importantly, breathe. The C-19er has wreaked some havoc on my bubble recently, so my thoughts have been with you. Oh yeah, thank you for asking. And yeah, we're we're doing actually great now. We've actually gotten back to working out again. Becky did lose her taste and smell. It's kind of intermittent. I never did. Neither of us had ever had any trouble breathing. But yeah, thanks for asking. We were we were very lucky and that we had a pretty quick recovery. Next she says, How could Catalina's stab wounds be so precisely lined up? It almost looks like, for lack of a better comparison, stitches from a sewing machine. 
Was Catalina perhaps rendered unconscious before the stabbing and the knife an afterthought? I don't think so. Based on what I was, I was saying earlier, I thought the same thing, thinking I was making the same mistake as Detective Allen, and that I saw them and thought these were like deep plunging wounds into her chest. But no, now that I know that those were likely wounds that were made with a much smaller knife and they didn't penetrate, coupled with all the defensive wounds on her arms and hands, I think that what it was is that Catalina was fighting them and um, you know, maybe they, those weren't pull back, plunge, pull back, plunge, pull back, plunge, but it's maybe just one attempt. You know what I mean? Like somebody's pushing in and she's fighting back, pushing away with her arms and they're just kind of overpowering back and forth, making those, those cutting wounds, which are more so cutting wounds than stab wounds. She lists them as stab wounds, but based on autopsies we've read in other cases, specifically the Melgar case, they distinguished a cutting wound to a stab wound as a wound that is deeper than it is wide is a stab, and a wound that is wider than it is deep is a cut. And based, using that definition, those wounds on the chest are all cutting wounds, not stab wounds. Um, so I think it has to do with the fact that that Catalina, was, when she was face up, was fighting her attacker, and then I think they manhandled her and rolled her over. And once she got to her side and they had her arm kind of pinned away from them, so her back was back and side was to them, then they were able to plunge the knife all the way in. Lauren says, remind us again where that wallet is now. Has Jennifer's lawyer looked into the cost of getting it MVAC tested? I don't know what he's looked into yet. I said, I, I made that, I actually made that suggestion to him a couple months ago, just, just, just because I know that, that there's other DNA found in the crime scene already. And because of the way Jennifer's confession already says there was other people involved, it's hard to see how DNA from the crime scene is going to help. But what, but the wallet is in the clerk's office. It's with the other exhibits. It's sealed up in an envelope. I was able to, to see it, but you know, with rubber gloves and everything. So it, it's, it's still intact at the DA's office or excuse me, at the district clerk's office where all the other exhibits are. Um, so, but I don't know. I mean, I mean, Justin hasn't shared with me what his plans are, what he's going to do. Um, and it may not even go that route, but, but in my opinion, even though there's, you know, obviously a lot of people handled the wallet, maybe you won't be able to point anything out, but, but today's technology, I think that especially if you use like MVAC um, to get touch DNA off of it, which will get every ounce of DNA off of every nook and cranny that hopefully they'd be able to separate the DNA out of it and, and maybe find a profile. And I think that's what you're looking for. It, for example, if Eva's DNA was found on that wallet, to me, that's, that's what sets Jennifer free. Because there's no re Eva has never said she touched the wallet. She never said she saw the wallet. She never knew anything about it. And it's found in her apartment. And then if you find out her DNA is on that wall, that she did actually touch the wall and then likely was the one that, that put it back there behind the fridge, then that tells you that anything she's saying is, it would discount everything she's saying and also go a long way towards incriminating her, especially when you add in the fact that when we're, we compare to her other statements, that it appears that she's made up an alibi, she's changed her story, her story doesn't fit with anybody else's. There's just a lot of reasons if her DNA was found on that, that, that she would become a much, much more likely suspect than Jennifer. But if Jennifer's DNA is found on it, I mean, it, that pretty much closes the deal for her. That's over. And entirely. Yeah. Even if there's like another explanation, like that she grabbed the wallet after the crime, it's th that won't matter. She's done. If, 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 they, if they test that wallet for DNA and she says she's never touched and doesn't know how it got there and they find her DNA on the wallet, then it's over for her. What if they find both their DNA on the wallet? 
I think it's still over for her. I think that might I think that might bring Eva into the into the mix. But yeah, I think if Jennifer's DNA is on that wall in any way, shape, or form, then then it would be over for her. If I had to if I had to bet a year's salary on it, I I would go with it's her DNA is not on it based on what we know now. But the only way we'll know is to actually do the testing. Barry says, what was the actual look and style of the wallet? Just more curiosity as it would help us maybe understand better how it was situated behind the fridge. It was uh, like a clutch wallet. I, I've got photos of it, which I can, I can put them up into the episode nine. Because I also want to put, I put on Facebook a, a very cr- a cropped image of the stab wounds across Catalina's chest. So all you can see is just the series of wounds. Um, I put it on Facebook. I'll go ahead today. So by the time you guys hear this, it should be there. If you go to look in the episode nine documents on our website, I'll put that photo up. And then um, I'll also put a photo up of the wallet. But it's a pretty thick wallet. It's like a clutch type wallet. Um, it had a lot of stuff in it. I mean, lots of cards and IDs. She had her ID and her sister's ID was in there. There was a lot in it. Um, I'd say it's probably a little over an inch thick. And that's so a lot of people have theorized that maybe maybe the wallet was just like put on top of the fridge to hide it and it accidentally slipped down and then wedged itself in the coils. I don't think that based on how thick the wallet is, I don't think that's, I think it's too thick for that. I think it had to probably have been jammed down in there. But then again, I don't know exactly how, you know, how far the refrigerator coils are from the refrigerator back there. Cause they don't, as far as I know, they don't make refrigerators like that anymore. I pulled all my fridges out after this to look at them and the coils are now all internal. You know, they're not on the outside like they used to be. Christina says, is there any information in any of the reports or witness testimony about who touched or handled the wallet after it was found? The painter, the maintenance man, or the officer? I'm assuming the officer would have been the only one who might have thought to wear gloves. Just trying to figure out how many DNA profiles might be on the wallet and whether there's actually a potential for it to be helpful. It'll be tough. As as I said, you know, hopefully with some technology we have today that they'll be able to separate profiles, but you know, based on, you know, I don't think Urbano Madrano, who's the the painter that found the wallet. I don't know that we get the, we have, we get the full story from him either. He doesn't speak English. There's definitely a language barrier there when he's on the stand. It's a very short testimony, but he says he finds it. There's no, he opens it up. There's no money in it. And then he says at some point that he has one of the other painters come over and look at it. So I don't know if that painter touched it or if they just came over and saw it, but then he just sticks it on the counter. And then the wallet's super frustrating because like I, when when did this happen? Was it a month after the crime, and then several months passed before before Keith Truesdale found it, or was it days? Was it what month was it even in? I don't know. But so you got one, maybe two, with the painters that touched it, and then put it on the counter, and then Keith Truesdale comes in, he sees it, he touches it, and then he calls Officer Cobb, and Officer Cobb comes and takes it. Who? maybe wore gloves. I don't know. The fact that he threw it in a paper bag and, and stuffed it in his car would tend to make me think that that he wasn't being super careful with it. So I don't know. There's a lot of people touched it and there's just there's still a ton of questions around it. I know that I'm not the only one that's frustrated by it, but I'm frustrated with the timeline of the wallet that we just have no idea where it's been or how right. long it had sat there or anything. Yeah. And it's like they intentionally left it out. And that's what or, you know Jennifer's attorney, I think, just did a piss poor job. He wasn't asking the right questions. He he never asked about the timing of it. Not that it, I th- it probably wouldn't have made a big difference. You know, basically the jury knows this wallet's found sometime after the murder, and that it has a terrible chain of custody, and that that the cop that 
finally got it, just left it riding around in his car for several months after that. And still the the judge let it in, which I think is preposterous. And some I think somebody asked if that was ever brought up an appeal. I don't know if it was brought up an appeal, but I don't think it would have mattered. You know, the, the biggest problem with any appeal in her case is the confession. Because, you know, you whether it's a Brady violation or whether it's an ineffective assistance of counsel or whatever it is, you're always fighting against the fact that you have to prove that whatever this new information is would have changed the outcome of the trial. And the state can always argue like, okay, so let's throw the wallet out. She still confessed. So it, it, it wouldn't have made much of a difference. Lynn says, I'm having difficulty reconciling Jen's cut locations on her right hand and her innocence. She also admits she didn't realize these cuts until she was washing dirt off of her hand shortly after the time Catalina was discovered. I find this evidence more incriminating than the wallet. Police never reported anyone else with cuts. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't know that the killer would have had cuts, but the, the location of the cut doesn't bother me. Um, I put them up on the, the website because to me they look like they're old, but she does say in her statement that she noticed them then. But the, the, the big the big scratch to me it is is like on it's on her palm kind of at the base of her thumb. And that's typically if you see cuts on someone, like somebody cuts their hand during the commission of a stabbing, which again, we got forensic episodes coming, but the DNA around the body and the, the crime scene itself there in the plants are, are not Jennifer's. There's two profiles. I'll tell you, there's, there's two profiles that are not hers. So, and in her confession, she's not the one doing the stabbing. There's no evidence she did the stabbing. But, you, but where you normally, if someone, you know, what happens is the blade gets bloody and then your hands will slip on it. And then usually what you'll see is on the index finger, you'll see cuts as the knife. I'm kind of showing Zach as I'm doing it. But as, as you're stabbing and it slips, then it'll cut right here or cuts down the, the fingers, inside of the fingers there. Kind of the inside pad of the fingers. Right. Or if you're stabbing like this, then you'll see it kind of down here on the bottom, like around the pinky. If you've got like the knife, so like the knife's coming out of the bottom of your hand and you're stabbing down like a kind of a hammer motion. Where she's got this arced cut like up by the by the palm of her hand, it's not where you typically see a wound from somebody who's stabbing somebody for starters. She says in, in all of her statements that she jumps the fence at some point. We see in the crime scene photos where the top of one of the pickets of the fence is broken, which looks like that's where somebody jumped over it. And it's so like to me, the cut right there on her palm looks a lot more like someone who put their hand, you know, jumped over a fence and put their hand on the edge of the fence and cut it there when they were jumping over the fence than from a knife. I don't know if that's what Lynn's getting at, if it's, it's from the knife, but maybe the fact that she has an injury consistent with somebody jumping over the fence is considered incriminating too. And I could see how it would be, but I also, we, you know, I, I think from the fingerprint on the, the patio glass, we know one way or another, at some point she was on the patio and probably went over the fence. I don't know, but I definitely don't think it's consistent with uh, a stab wound from a slipping or a, a wound from a slipping knife. Lori says, does anyone else see a pattern of the apartment maintenance worker, Truesdale, keep popping up? Was the one that reported the wallet the same one that was at the crime scene? It, he was, but I don't. It doesn't surprise me at all. I guess it's from, you know, in the late 90s, I actually worked as a lead maintenance tech at a similar sized apartment complex when I was living in Colorado. And I would have been popping up all the time, too, because I was the guy that handled everything. So, you know, if they needed the keys to get into an apartment, if we were um, making repairs before somebody moved in, if I was same, just like him, checking painters work when they when they turned it over, it would always be me. So it doesn't it doesn't stand out to me at all that that he's consistently popping up because he's 
you know, the first, as far as him being at the crime scene to begin with, he was grabbed by the manager and told to go there. That's confirmed by everyone. So, you know, there's nothing suspicious about that. And then as far as him getting the wallet, I mean, he would, he's the maintenance guy. So the fact that he went into the apartment to check on the painter's work to get it ready to be rented, that's his job. He, of course, would be in there doing that. Angela says, Bob asked why the adults involved would let the teen lookout get the money and wallet. What if they took the money and gave the wallet to Jen to dispose of? Honestly, I think that's a stretch. You know, so you're heat of the crime. You've just killed somebody. You're leaving. You've got the wallet in your hand. And if there's these two other guys that are there with her, they fled, right? So that means that they, in the process of before they flee, they open the wallet, go through it, take the cash out. And instead of dropping it or just taking it with them, hand it to Jennifer and say, here, get rid of this. Even though we're leaving the scene, we're going away, but you get rid of this. It doesn't, it, it just doesn't add up to me that, that they would do that. I think they, they grab the wall, put it in their pocket and go. Gemma says, did any of the knives at the scene match the stab wounds on Catalina? If not, did the police look to see whether there were any incomplete sets of knives at the apartment? If not, then does this add weight to the fact that this may have been more premeditated than we first thought? So we, we don't know. You know, that I mentioned in the episode there was some sleight of hand by the prosecutor, and it's just another thing where I'm just so frustrated by her defense attorney that, I mean, she very clearly, it, I mentioned the episode, but just to elaborate on a little bit, I've been an ex- expert witness on, on several cases, depositions and, and cases when I was in the fire service, and in the prep for testifying, we would do just that. They'd say, okay, well, if I ask you this, how would you answer? How are you going to answer it? And I'd tell them. And then they would say, okay, well, what if I, what if I rephrase the question like this, then, then could you say yes? You know, for, I'm thinking of a particular case where I, I was, um, I, I was, I worked for the state, uh, training council training other trainers. And so there was a, a lawsuit about, about some training requirements that I was, I was the expert witness in. And, you know, they, they said, well, is it required by the state to, for a fire chief to be certified as firefighter too. And I said, no, it's not. And that kind of messed up their case. And they were like, well, why, why, why not? I said, well, it's, it's actually kind of a loophole. It doesn't say that they have to be trained with firefighter, firefighter too. And they're like, well, what if we rephrase it and say, in your opinion, should a fire chief, based on the way you know the laws and the requirements are written or something to that extent, do you think that a fire chief should be certified as firefighter too? And the answer to that was yes. So like that was a prep that was done beforehand. So they adjusted their, their, their question in order to, to get the response they were looking for on the stand. Now, in that case, then I had you know the defense who was paying attention then in cross-examination says, well, you said they should, but are they required to by law? Then my answer was no, because myself and most expert witnesses aren't going to get on the stand and blatantly lie uh, because you, you, you're done then. Like if, if you're caught lying on the stand as an expert witness, then your career as an expert witness is over. And it's a pretty well-paying career uh, for people to get paid to, to do that kind of testimony. And someone who is as a, the credentials of Joyce Carter, who's the doctor that, that, that was the ME, isn't going to risk her reputation for that. And so it was, I think it was very carefully chosen words. Are these wounds consistent? with a knife or a butcher knife, to which she could say yes to. 
but but that's as far as we get into it. The state obviously didn't want. I, I think once the autopsy, they got the opinion of the medical examiner about the wounds. I, I'm I, I'm not speaking for her, but I would assume that she would explain to them like, no, these were made with a smaller knife. That they just didn't want to touch it. And of course, the you know the, the closest the defense comes to it is when Coyne says, "Well, is that knife in this picture? Could that be consistent with those wounds?" And she says, "Yes." And if you look at the picture on her website, that's a small steak knife. And she says, yes, it could be consistent with those. But nothing was ever compared. I do want to go back and review Juan Mendiola's testimony because I feel like in trying to bolster their case more that there was questions with him. And I need to bring that. I'll, I'll go back through that. I'll have for next week as follow-up. They, they get him to say, yeah, I know that knife that I gave it to her and, and like a butcher knife was missing from it or something. But if you look at the crime scene photos, if I remember correctly, you can see there's a butcher knife still there. It wasn't used. But as far as getting the question on premeditation, it's hard to say because these comparisons weren't done. And even still, it would be hard. There were so many knives in, the, in that silverware drawer. It's hard to say. But yeah, I, I think, in my non-expert opinion, that this was caused by either a knife like the size of a steak knife, no bigger than that, or a pocket knife or a switchblade. You know, we also don't get if the wounds are tapered on each side, which we've seen in other cases, which would tell you this is a double-sided knife or a single-edged knife. We don't get any of that information, but I, I'm backing off my original hypothesis, which was this is simply a crime of opportunity. Remember, originally I thought she's on the patio. Somebody just jumped in and went after her. There's more and more evidence that's going to be coming out. I finally got a set of crime scene photos from the DA or from the Houston PD that were missing. I think that she was inside with the sliding the screen door locked, and I think that she was targeted. I think that there's evidence, ample evidence that she was not outside when the attack started. There's evidence that the screen door was locked and a tool was used to pry open the screen door. And now we have evidence that it's possible, and we're not saying it was, but it's possible that the killer brought a knife in with them, that she wasn't killed from a knife in her own kitchen, that that's a possibility, which is is now starting to look like, okay, maybe she was actually targeted and this wasn't just a random crime of opportunity. Marnie says, there are descriptions in the autopsy report of the length and width of the stab wounds. The ME also gave some direction, entering front to back, right to left. Was there anything about the height of the attacker? I find it odd that the wounds are below the shoulder blade and in her chest. There's not, but there's nothing that can be established there because I I think the evidence indicates that Catalina was laying on the ground when she was stabbed. So it, so then, like, height's taken out of it. You know, she's not... Even if they were standing up, it's still... You never know how the dynamics of a crime scene are going to work. There's no way you could you could determine how tall they were. But the fact that I believe she was laying on the ground and someone was over the top of her, someone could have been four foot tall or seven foot tall, and you could have found the wounds in the same place. Next, she asks, Where did you, Bob, read that Catalina was hit over the head with the plant stand? Oh, good question. I wish I had the answer to it. So I, I touched on this, but to, to break it down for you, when I got the case file, I read it's the way I always do it. I read through the trial transcripts. Like in one like one sitting, I just read through everything and I've got a yellow legal pad out there that I just take basic notes on. So I have an idea of what the state's case was and how things shook out. In those notes, I have a big star next to the fact that there was a wound on her skull that matched the metal plant stand, which I thought came from, I got from the medical examiner's testimony. 
I was as shocked as you when I got to the end of the testimony when I was writing the script and I'm like, shit, where was it? I thought it was there. I suspect it was Detective Allen or or Detective Swainson's testimony, which, which that's kind of where we're going. I, I said we're going to get into the forensics. We're going to get into the crime scene investigation. This week's episode, we're going to cover Lorenzo Verbatowski's uh, testimony, who was the crime scene investigator. So we're going to cover his. So we'll see if it's there. And then I want to go through Swainson and Allen's testimony, uh, basically going to walk through all of the state's case over the, these next few weeks through each of their individual testimonies. And we'll, we'll either find it somewhere or I completely wrote it wrong. But as I said, for now, to be perfectly fair, uh, I think that just just disregard that for this point. So if, if you're any theory you have that's based on that information, disregard it until I can source it. And I apologize for that, but I was just I was just wrong about that as far as where I found it. Kim says, I find myself struggling with Jen this week. Who is she really? Is she a traumatized country girl trying to play in the big leagues? Or is she a quickly evolving streetwise, drug-using runaway enamored with guys like KD and Youngster? Why listen to and lie based on what Eva says, who she's only known two days, and why go back to Eva's after being with the police instead of her mom's? And I most struggle with she has yet, as far as I can tell, explained what she says actually happened. I understand her attorney's advice, but the hardest thing about this case for me is that no one appears to be telling the truth, including Jennifer. What do you think? Well, first of all, she didn't only know Eva for two days. I think Eva had said she knew her for like a month. She had, or she had met her a month earlier through her mom. She was, it sounds like she was kind of friends with Eva. As, as far as why she would listen to her, I don't think, as far as your, the original question is, is she this like quickly evolving streetwise girl? Or is she still the the you know the the naive country girl that's trying to fit in? I think that to me that I think a streetwise girl doesn't get caught up in this at all. You know, someone someone who's streetwise is is if somebody says lie to them, they're be like hell no, I'm just going to say I don't know what happened. But but I think it cuts more towards someone who's 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 trying to fit in, especially with an adult an older crowd that she would that she would go along with. It. As far as why I tell the lie. And the fact that she's never explained what happened. I mean, she's never been given the opportunity. She didn't testify at her own trial. There was no media on this case for her to get her story out until Crime Watch Daily. And then they, you know, it sounds like she gave them some version, but it's really cut up that it's, it's, you don't get like her telling this whole narrative. They like cut things down to, to 30 seconds of her little pieces of what she says happened. So she's just never been given the opportunity and her, and, and her attorneys, you know, rightly so, don't want her to speak on the case because, because they're hopefully to get it back into court and active appeal. But as far as like listening to Eva, it doesn't surprise me at all. If, if, so let's say if she's innocent, then this is all happening very fast. You know, she comes in you know, or she gets, she gets back. Something's happening. If Eva takes off and then they come back, they, they go into the apartment, they find her dead. And then. Eva, this, you know, the, the, the 24-year-old who's allowing her to live at her house that she's kind of seen as her place now, says, you need to tell them this because we're in danger. If you don't, if you don't tell them this, we're in danger. You need to tell them this. Uh, and then she also tells Alan that next day, and we don't know when, that Eva told her. He asked, he asked if she had talked with Eva about what was said, and she said Eva told her to keep her story straight and don't let him trick her. Don't let him mix her up and get her to change her story. As far, so when she goes back, I think that her going back to Eva's apartment that night, again, 
and this is based on on let's just assume for the purposes of discussion that she is innocent. You know, Eva grabs her, tells her to say this. She says it, and then she gets down to the drug down to the police station, and she gives a statement. I can see why when she gets back, she wants to go back over there and see like what the hell happened or want to get more information. Like, okay, like now that we have some a minute, like what the hell just happened? Like, why am I telling them this? Why am I doing this? I think there definitely was a discussion about it because she says that Eva told her not to change her story, to stick with it. it meanwhile, again, Eva's telling her this, according to Jennifer, after Eva has already told them that she's lying. Eva's already said that Jennifer's lying. So to answer the question, I see this much more as someone trying to fit in, whether she's innocent or guilty, than someone who is just very streetwise getting mixed in this. I don't know what your thoughts are, Zach. No, I, I agree with you. And I think you touched on it. I think that exactly that. I think a lot of times we forget that Jennifer is a child. Like she's a 15 year old child. You know, we we're playing her up and we're thinking as adults what we would do as an adult. But she's 15. I mean, that that is a child, you know? Right. So she's listening to this woman who is an adult in her eyes, tell her what to do. So, you know, that is a superior telling you what to do. Right. You're going to follow them and do what they tell you to do. Yeah. Especially when she's in a situation where she has kind of turned her back on the only other authority figure in her life, her mother, Mm -hmm. you know, she's, she's trying to, she's trying to act grown and she's like, you know, I'm, I'm running away from home. I'm not living under her rules. You know, that we can't have boys and I'm going to this, you know, so so I think that that puts Eva's status even higher in her mind. And especially if we said that she's met her through her mother, you know, I could I could talk to your 16 year old son and he is going to listen to me because he knows that I have a relationship with you and I am an adult. Right. So he is going to do what I tell him to do, regardless of if it's right or wrong. Right. Mary says, what if the person who is trying to temporarily at least hide the wallet by throwing it behind the refrigerator? or just on top. Then the wallet slid down and was wedged in the middle. Certainly would explain why it got left there. What are your thoughts? As far as we've already touched on the idea of it just kind of falling back there, I think someone tucked it in there. As far as it being left, I don't know. I guess a lot of people have had the same thought, and then that brings questions in like, who would leave it? Would Jennifer leave it? Would Eva leave it? Would KD or Youngster leave it? And as I said, it's a mystery because you can kind of make the same arguments for for everyone. So obviously with Jennifer, you can say it would be left there because the next day she went to jail. You know, she never came back. So she never, but she did go back that night. She went back that night and talked to Eva, maybe even Katie and youngster were there. And so you would think that if, if Jennifer's involved, that she shared some of her involvement with Eva, you'd think it becomes very difficult to piece together a scenario where, where Jennifer is involved in this, where she's like telling Eva to lie. then. If that's true, if what Eva says is true, that Jennifer told her to lie, that you think that night that conversation would be like, why the hell are you lying? Like, why are you telling me to lie? There, there would just be some opportunity to get it. I don't know that Jennifer was ever alone in the apartment. It doesn't sound like from the statements we have that she ever was. As far as why someone would leave it there, I think, I think that if someone took the money out and there's police showing up down below, like there's police right outside your door. To say shit, I gotta put this somewhere where they're not gonna find it, and and they stuff it, stuff the wallet back in there. At that point, it's concealed, it's gone. The police have been in and out. So let's say let's say if Eva was involved, okay, the crime's over by by Thursday afternoon, by Thursday night, the crime is over. It's solved. They have Jennifer in custody. They've made the arrest. It's over. 
I don't think it's weird at all for her to be like, well, then I'm just getting the hell out of here. I'm moving out. I'm leaving all my shit and I'm getting out of here and not go back and get the wallet and then take a piece of evidence and put it back into her possession again and travel with it somewhere to get rid of it when it's already been missed by police. It's already there. They already don't. And the case is evidently closed. You know, so so you could see how, you could see how or why Eva would leave it. You could see how or why Jennifer would leave it because she didn't have an opportunity to go back. But you know, then again, why not grab that night after her first interrogation or her first statement, and they're all there together? Why not get it out of there and go hide it? She had the opportunity. As far as Katie and youngster, you know, they fled. It's hard to it's hard to imagine them doing it. They fled the scene. They left. Like, why would they then take the wallet, take the money out, and just and then stuff it in there instead of doing what they did, which is leave and take it with them. So I, I don't know. It's it's just, it's a big mystery to me, but I, as Zach said at the beginning, I don't think the wallet incriminates or provides exculpatory evidence for, for anyone really. Michelle says, I might've missed this, but how did detective Allen know about the wallet being discovered to ask officers slash security guard Cobb about it? The way I read the report, it sounds like when officer Cobb found the wallet that the best I can figure, he made a phone call to the homicide division. You know, he's he's just a beat cop or juvenile officer that's working security. So I, the way I, the best I can understand it is he made a call to the homicide division, said, "Hey, this wallet was found. The maintenance man says this is from above where that murder happened." And Detective Allen says, "Okay, great. Go ahead and log that into evidence." And then cop just leaves it in his car the whole time after that. You want to say mistakes happen, but Cobb pisses me off because if you read his report that's on our website, you see that he straight up lied about it. He put in his report that he had it in a file that whole time when it was just sitting in the, sitting in his car. But then eventually, you know, they're getting closer to trial, and Alan's like, well, we should test that wallet and finds out it's not in evidence. And then that's when he calls him and says, hey, where the hell is the wallet at? And, and he says, oh, it's in my car. Okay, that's it for questions this week. All right. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Zach. Thanks to all of you for all of your questions, thoughts, and theories. We've got a lot more to come. We're really digging into. We're getting out of out of uh, a lot of theory and and all the statement and getting into some brass tacks now as we start to break down the testimony of the detectives and the forensic techs that worked this case in the coming weeks. And uh, for a midweek listen, make sure you check out True Crime Binge. We had uh, Jennifer and Jess on, who are Broadway actresses, who had to pivot into true crime podcasting when they got shut down due to covid last week they have a podcast called killing it on broadway it's very very good we had a great fun conversation this week on true crime bench please check that out um and also don't forget uh that crime cons coming up june 4th in austin texas you can use our code rough to get 10 percent off tickets i did get an email from crime con last night that said that um that they believe they're going to clear as they call them pretty much everybody on the wait list meaning they're going to get tickets to everybody uh, here very soon as they're as they're seeing what the restrictions are going to be. So there's not a lot of time left to get those tickets. So if you want to get them, go on to CrimeCon's website. Use code ROUGH, 10% off. Hope to see a bunch of you there. Zach's going to be joining me. And with that being said, make sure you tune in this Sunday to hear the Crime Scene Investigator's testimony. And we'll see you next week on our Friday follow-up.
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Sky Stream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Sky Stream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply.